This podcast is a recording of a presentation by Jesse McCall on Restoring the Joy, Dealing with Post-COVID-19 Burnout. The presentation was an RCVS Knowledge Session at SPIV's VMG Congress on the 13th of May 2021. Jesse McCall is Director and Improvement Advisor at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. He is also a teaching fellow at Harvard University on courses specifically related to the practical application of the science of improvement. All right, so we are here to talk today about joy in work, uh, and that may you know, be a kind of different term than we've heard before. We often hear about uh, burnout or stress and chaos at work, uh, but at IHI we like to take a positive spin and, and put some positive on things. So we like to talk about joy in work and, and trying to um, bring joy into our workforce. Um, before I get started, I will admit that most of my work has been in human healthcare. I've done a bit of research into the veterinary profession um, for the talk today. Um, but you know, this these joy in work principles come from multiple industries. Um, so I think they're absolutely applicable. Um, no matter where you're working, whether it be in patient care, animal care, manufacturing, education, um, these are principles that we can use uh, across all our industries. Um, as we said, this session was uh, brought to you in partnership with RCVS Knowledge, and I thank them for uh, inviting me um, in to talk to you all today. So during our session, we are going to talk about um, recognizing the value of increasing joy and well-being at your organizations during and after COVID-19. Uh, we are going to identify some key changes in your systems uh, that you might take to improve joy and work for yourself and your staff. Uh, and we're hoping that you take away at least one intervention where you can test um, immediately to try and bring about um, a, a more increased feeling of meaning, choice, safety, camaraderie, equity, uh, in in the midst of uh, COVID-19 as we're still uh, kind of wrestling with this pandemic uh, and beyond. Um, the kind of areas of work that I'll um, suggest and talk about uh, are definitely applicable now, uh, but we'll set up systems to foster joy and work um, well beyond um, the, the pandemic. Uh, I will also introduce my orange cat, Sawyer. Uh, that's his about the author picture there, uh, and he'll pop up a couple of times throughout the presentation. Uh, first, a little bit about IHI. Uh, we are a uh, kind of medium-sized not-for-profit based in Boston, Massachusetts in the USA uh, with a global footprint. So we work on all continents, uh, save Antarctica, uh, in different uh, care settings around the world. Uh, and our goal is to uh, improve the lives of patients, the health of communities, and the joy of the healthcare workforce. We do that through harnessing the power of improvement science, and we try to ignite action to connect the healthcare workforce to the values of healthcare, the, the you know, reasons why people got into the profession, uh, and to bring about a greater sense of joy and a sense of purpose in their work. Um, so we first started really looking into joy and work about five years ago, uh, and to do so, we turned to one of the founders of improvement science, being that is uh, what our organization is grounded in. One of those founders being uh, W. Edwards Deming, uh, who really spoke to the systems that we need to create to think about joy and work. It's not, you know, telling our staff to be more resilient or be happier at work or, you know, don't be so burnout that we are 
um, you know, creating and operating systems that our staff and ourselves work in. Uh, so management's overall aim really should be to create a system in which everyone may take joy in their work. Um, along the same lines, he had said that people are entitled to joy in their work. And again, it's management's um, real job to create the, the culture, the system, and the environment that uh, fosters that sense of joy or pride in, in someone's work. We also looked to Aaron Antonovsky, who was a... Um, a uh, psychologist and uh, researcher into the connection between stress, fatigue, burnout, um, and how that affects people in both work and their uh, lives outside of work. Um, and through him, we are coming to understand that joy is more than the absence of burnout. Um, when we first approached this, we had thought, you know, that's a, a, a kind of linear scale that joy is on one side and burnout is on the other. Um, but joy is more than the absence of burnout. They almost exist on different but interrelated scales. So the absence of, um, you know, burnout is not being burnt out or the absence of joy in work is having no joy in work. Um, and, you know, he said that health is not just the absence of disease, but rather the process by which individuals maintain their sense of coherence, their kind of uh, enjoyment of life, that they have a life that's comprehensible, manageable, and meaningful, uh, and their ability to function in the face of changes in themselves and their relationship and their environment. Um, so kind of a, a bit to that resilience piece, but again, it's the, the systems that create um, an environment where our staff can be resilient. With some of that as background, we know that uh, also joy in work is individual to every person. Uh, everyone experiences their, their home environment, their work environment uh, very differently, and different things bring that feeling of, of joy to your work, uh, whether that is happy and satisfied customers, a feeling of autonomy or control over your work, uh, being able to get away from work and spend time with uh, family. And that's uh, my family on the top right-hand corner there, uh, my wife and my uh, about two-year-old daughter. Uh, it may be getting to spend time with your um, pets uh, or in, in your case, the um, you know kind of patients that you see each and every day. And that's uh, again, my orange cat Sawyer on the bottom left. Could be the sense of satisfaction in a job well done or you know working with a team and supporting uh, that team to achieve your goals. Um, so I'd like to ask everyone to take kind of a minute to reflect on really what brings you joy in work. Um, I don't think we have the ability to uh, chat here. So I'll just ask you to reflect on that for about a minute. What, what brings you that sense of joy in your work? All right, uh, and I imagine um, a good number of answers kind of aligned with the different pictures that I have uh, up here on the slider that I described. Um, but if not, um, again, that's personal to, to you, and I, I hope you're able to at least identify or think about really what brings you that sense of joy um, when you're in your when when you're in the workplace. Uh, what what's the reason that you got into uh, this field to begin with, and and are you able to feel that reason or that meaning each and every day? So um, we knew uh, burnout was important uh, before the pandemic, uh, and I think even more important now. Um, as I mentioned, I did have an opportunity to look into uh, some stats around the veterinary profession uh, and learned that you know there are uh, there's a great amount of um, kind of similarity between the health and healthcare workforce and the veterinary workforce, um, and and you know these factors or these stats, I think. 
you know, expand out to just the general workforce as well as where um, as more pressures are put on us um, as, as staff to, you know, do, do more with less um, and, and to meet our organizational and, and customer goals more and more. Um, but in the veterinary profession, we see that 75% of vets are concerned about stress and burnout in the profession as a result of COVID-19, and that comes from the Britannary, uh, British Veterinary Association. Um, looking to um, a survey that was done in Canada, 51% uh, of Canadian vets consider themselves to be suffering from burnout and 31% needing to stop work for an average of 90 days, so to step away from the work because they were feeling so burnt out. Um, I will say that that is a, you know, it, it takes some kind of self-awareness to be able to say I'm burnt out and need to step away. Um, and there, you know, it shouldn't get to that point, but uh, good on, on those folks for recognizing that they needed to step away for a bit. Um, but hopefully we don't get to that point. Uh, and then finally from vet life, um, UK veterinary professionals are three times more likely to commit suicide than the general public and two times more likely than the medical profession. Um, and you know, we see that uh, risk of suicide and suicide ideation um, in the healthcare workforce. Um, and you know, again, a, a lot of similarities between uh, vets and um, you know, doctors and nurses that are, that are caring for uh, humans. Um, so to try and um, mitigate the effects of burnout or to build that joyful workforce, we need to move away from some old ways of thinking and establish some new mental models. In that old way of thinking, you know, we already have a great wellness and staff recognition program, shouldn't that be enough for our staff? Individuals are responsible for their resilience and well-being. You know, you just uh, be happier at work, do a better job. Um, but we need to really move to a new way of thinking where we reframe, reframing focus on individuals and systems, and we build on what's working to get results. So of course, you know, if we do have a great staff recognition or a wellness program, what in there is really working um, that we can, you know, really, um, build upon uh, and strengthen and what might not be working in there and how do we recognize that and, and try and do something different. Um, the old way of thinking of our HR or organizational development teams, they're responsible for joint work. They're managing the workforce. They put on you know, educational programs to make sure people know how to do their job and do better. Uh, but we need to think about leaders at all levels focusing on factors beyond resilience to drive that joy in the work. There is a role for everyone in an organization to play to build the culture of a joyful workforce. Um, the old way of thinking that staff satisfaction leads to lower turnover um, needs to move to really be thinking about improved outcomes for patients, families, and the organization. You know, uh, that kind of feeling of achievement or a job well done or meeting your, your purpose for why you got into this profession um, rather than just thinking about keeping our staff satisfied and then they won't leave our organizations. And this thinking around staff just want money and benefits. Um, if we look to some of the kind of workplace psychology thinkers, um, they are big proponents that meaning, purpose, camaraderie, and teamwork and, and equity matter for joy. Of course, we all you know want and need to get paid for the work that we do, but uh, you know, there are much deeper purposes for us. You know taking on uh, a career that we follow through on our lives rather than just getting that paycheck uh, or benefits available to us. The key drivers that um, are leading to burnout or you know, detracting from joy in our workforce are complex and interrelated. And you know, they are kind of systems that we've created for managing our 
practices, managing our staff that, um, that create this feeling of burnout. So excessive workload and unmanageable work schedules on top of that heavy workload, inadequate staffing, trying to do more with less, the burden of administration and documentation and reporting that, that exists um, pervasively across um, so many professions, um, being distracted or getting interrupted during your workflows and having to kind of start the same task over and over again, uh, having new technologies that aren't very user friendly or, or don't connect well to other systems that we use in our organization. And then back to that time pressure um, can leave us really feeling like the um, like the picture on the right hand side of the slide here where you, know, you just don't know where to go. You don't know where to start because all these things are, are, are so tied together um, and driving that feeling of, of stress, chaos, and burnout um, in our workplaces. And we know that joy and well-being cannot happen when those work demands and pressures are not matched to the knowledge, abilities, or needs of our staff, uh, that our staff it, it can't be joyful when they aren't supported by supervisors or peers. Um, they can't be joyful when they have little control over their work processes, when they're just sort of turning that cog in the wheel. Um, that doesn't help them you know, practice at the top of their license or connect to their meaning and, and purpose of why they got into the profession. Um, thinking about um, you know, joy is very difficult to be joyful under unsatisfactory working conditions. Having that super heavy workload over a long period of time, working at an accelerated pace for long hours, uh, it's just not a joyful environment. And, and finally, um, joy cannot happen when moral injury is repeatedly happening over and over again. I think we've seen this, especially during the pandemic, uh, of having to take over you know, roles of family members due to uh, them being quarantined. So having to say uh, goodbye to patients who are um, moving on and not being able to you know, connect them to their family and, and the weight that that puts on, on your conscious and, and your morality, um, you know, it, it's very difficult to be joyful in the face of that. So with all of that as background, I hope I painted a, a you know, I, know, I hope I painted a, a bleak picture of uh, the, the systems that are out there that, that drive joy out of our workforce and, and lead to that feeling of, of being really burnt out and, and not being able to connect to why you got into the profession. So to address this issue of burnout, um, we worked to develop a two-part framework. Um, and this is going to be really the um, kind of what I hope you take away from the talk is uh, this framework and um, the ability to hopefully try it out or work it in, in your practices. This framework starts with asking staff what matters to you. Um, and you know, there's more specificity behind that question that I'll get into in just a second. Um, once you've asked staff what matters to you and understood what your workforce values, or you know, even asked yourself what matters to me and what do I value, then you want to move on to identifying unique impediments to joy and work in your local context. You know, our, our systems are all similar but also unique. Um, so, what are the unique things that are um, impeding joy in work or leading to burnout in our organizations. Um, once we've identified those unique local impediments, or I like to also call them kind of the pebbles in your shoe, uh, or the, you know, sometimes the boulders in the way uh, of, of having a good day at work. Um, once you've identified those unique impediments, you can commit to making joy in work uh, or wellness at work a shared responsibility at all levels of your organization. Um, as I said before, there's kind of roles for each and every 
every person in an organization or practice to play um, to create that joyful environment. Um, and then finally, once you've made that commitment, you use improvement science to test approaches to improving joy and work in your organization. So being rigorous in trying out new things, in improving your systems uh, and measuring um, you know, your, the outcomes that you're achieving, which uh, we know having a joyful workforce will lead to an increased uh, or improved patient experience. It'll lead to improved organizational performance and of course, decreased staff burnout when we're um, removing those impediments to them feeling joyful um, that will decrease burnout. So I said this was a two-part framework. This is the first part. It's really the how, um, how you try and establish that culture of joy in your organization uh, or in yourself. Um, once you know, we have a second part to that framework as well, and this is really, the first part was the how. The second part is the kind of what you would work on. Um, so I mentioned the first step is to have those what matters to you conversations, the second one to identify those unique local impediments to joy and work. Um, and those unique local impediments can be bucketed into one of these nine different areas, physical and psychological safety, meaning and purpose, choice and autonomy, recognition and rewards, participative management, camaraderie and teamwork daily improvement, wellness and resilience, and real-time measurement. Uh, if you can find uh, a, an impediment that can't be bucketed in one of these, uh, please let me know because we will uh, kind of add that uh, into the framework. These are meant to be intentionally broad, again, reflecting that the factors that sit underneath these topics uh, are kind of unique to each organization uh, and each system that exists out there. We'll come back to some of these in a couple of minutes. Um, I do want to spend a little bit of time with the what matters to you conversations and give a bit of guidance around that. Um, if you come away with kind of one thing from my talk today, I hope it, it's to go out and at least try to have a what matters to you conversation with your staff or to reflect on it yourself. Um, so the purpose of these what matters to you conversations is to increase joy in work um, and senior leaders and core leaders engage in effective, meaningful conversations with colleagues and staff to understand what matters to you in your daily work? Um, how do we build on assets? What helps make a good day? When, are we, when we're at our best as a practice, what does that look like? Uh, and then also what gets in the way of having a good day? What are those pebbles in the shoes, uh, in your shoes that, that kind of just you know, bite at you all day long or you know, all week long, all month long? Uh, and what can we do to remove those? When you're having these what matters to you conversations, you should really be in listening mode. It can be easy to jump into kind of defense and offer your own perspective on how it's you know, not like that, but to really put yourself in listening mode, allow who you're asking the questions to, to, to respond, and then sometimes even to kind of teach back or repeat back what you heard to make sure that you're capturing their sentiments right. Um, in these conversations, it's kind of important to be comfortable with science, with silence, uh, and to really, again, be in that listening mode, not to just hear, but to understand. Um, silence is important because it gives the person you're talking to a, a, a you know, time to really reflect on what does matter to me, what gets in the way of my good day, and to you know, do some internal processing. So silence is okay in these conversations. Also recognizing and framing the conversation that you know, we're not gonna fix everything right now. We have to understand all of the issues that are happening that are impacting how our workforce feels um, before we can try and do some prioritization of these issues and then make a real plan to address them 
in a methodical way. Um, and we want to ensure that this work is done with colleagues and with colleagues and team members, not just to them or for them, but we are all partners um, in this work and we're all kind of creators or shepherds of the, the culture of our organizations that can either support or detract from joy in work. Um, so I think there's a very helpful resource out there called the What Matters to You Conversation Guide. You can, um, my slides I think are available uh, and you can click the link on this slide or even just Google What Matters to You Conversation Guide uh, and this resource will come up. It's got a lot of um, different prompts that you can use and kind of examples or stories of um, other folks who have had these conversations. So from those other folks who have had conversations, a couple of lessons to offer. And again, I hope you do go out and, and actually um, have some of these what matters to you conversations. Um, just start. Um, so you, these can be easily overplanned, um, but I think the best way to really plan for them is to have a couple of them. Find a, you know, maybe a trusted colleague and have this conversation um, or find a partner who's willing to have these conversations together and practice with each other first. Um, as I said before, really not do with this, your, your staff or with your colleagues, not to them or for them. It can be helpful to huddle in pairs with someone who's really um, listening and driving the conversation, uh, but then also someone to take some notes so you're not trying to you know, have a meaningful, engaging conversation with someone, but also trying to you know, remember what they're saying intently and take a lot of notes down. Um, so a scribe can be helpful. Um, once you're comfortable having these conversations, you can also have them in some open spaces so that others could see and join in and offer their perspective. Um, if you do have some basic QI skills, you can start to test some things right away once you've been able to do some prioritization or some things might surface that just are, you know, we need to get on this now. Um, when you are testing or making changes in your organization, you should think about starting small first to then you know, go big once you are confident that this change is right for your organization. And sometimes that can mean going a little bit slow in the beginning to actually be able to go faster at the end as you, you know, are sure that this change is going to actually work or this you know, staffing change or management changes is really gonna be effective in your organization. When you're having these conversations, you know, these are meant to be ongoing conversations. They're not one and done. Um, they should be done you know, periodically throughout the year with different staff in different roles at all levels of the organization. And a useful tool to be able to track all of this information, um, there's an example here up on the screen, is a Kanban board. Um, this is really a visual management system of work through a pipeline. So we've on the left-hand side here, we've got kind of all the ideas that we've collected or the things that we're gonna start to work on uh, in the next column over here, here's what we're gonna do next. Uh, here's the work that we have in progress on the third column. And here's all that we've done. Here's the work that we've finished on the right-hand side. This can be a great signal to, to staff that, you know, here's everything that you've said and here's where it is in the work process. Um, also an opportunity for people to add additional ideas or to kind of add some nuance to the ideas or, or work in process that might be up there. Also a good idea on these Kanban boards or visual management systems to uh, share some data uh, that, you're, that you're tracking around staff experience or you know, patient or customer experience. Um, but, but what are we ultimately trying to affect here and are we sharing that data transparently? So I would like to go back to that joy in work framework, the real, you know, what we would work on here. Uh, I realize nine domains is a lot to carry. Um, so there, so we recommend 
recommend three areas uh, that you can really start in that we think are the biggest levers to pull around joy and work. And that's physical and psychological safety, meaning and purpose, and choice and autonomy. And I'll dive into each of these a little bit more deeply. When we think about autonomy and control, uh, I'll first put out kind of a definition around that. Um, so characteristics that support autonomy, choice, and control of someone's work mean that a job is comprehensible. It's understandable. It makes sense. People know what they're doing and how it fits into the broader picture of the organization. Um, you know, I know when I'm finished with this process, who's picking it up, uh, or I know, you know, really how my role fits into the strategy of the organization, the mission, vision, values of, of our collective. Um, that the work is manageable, the volumes proportionable to the time and re resources available to actually complete the job. So is it, is it realistic? Um, is their work controllable? Do people have a say when work is done and how much uh, work they're able to, to do? Do they have input into that kind of, um, you know, their, their role and the definition of that role? Is there flexibility in the way work is done uh, and where the work is done, of course, within reason, because we do know that uh, having uh, standards in our work increase the you know, efficiency and effectiveness of our work. Um, but where we are able to is, are we able to offer our staff flexibility in, in how, where, and, and when they do their work? And finally, um, we wanna have uh, sufficient time to accomplish our work in our, our day. Is our job designed that is actually able to be accomplished in one day and that we don't have to bring work home or stay late at the office or stay uh, or come in early just to, just to do the, the um, regular job that we have. Those some ideas uh, or some change concepts that you could apply um, that would drive a, a, an increased feeling of autonomy, control or choice in someone's work. Uh, the first one is to optimize team composition and assure adequate staffing to allow people to spend more time on what they're uniquely qualified to do to allow people to practice at the at the top of their license um, whether that's an actual top of the license or a theoretical top of the license but um, are we letting our our staff and ourselves use all of our skills that we bring to the workforce in a way that is meaningful to them we can also establish a system of schedule flexibility. I was working with a team in Southern California um, who, due to COVID-19, had to increase their uh, office availability and their office hours so they could um, so be able to see the same volume of patients, um, but also maintain social distancing protocols and, and contact protocols so they um, increased their hours and also offered weekend appointments. Uh, the first thing they did was just to assign staff. You know, you're working on nights, you're working on weekends. And there was an almost immediate staff revolt. You know, I, I can't work nights, I can't work weekends. Um, that's, you know, I have things going on outside of work. Uh, so they pivoted and said, all right, staff, you select when you want to work. Who, you know, we have these responsibilities to fill to meet our patient needs. Um, who can work on nights, who can work on weekends. Um, and just through asking staff, um, they were able to fill all of their, um, all of their expanded appointment slots. Uh, and the staff was much happier um, to show up to work in those expanded hours because they had a say in when they were doing that work. We always want to think about reducing unnecessary work. Um, is there work? waste in our system that we can that we can remove? Have we changed things and are, are we doing certain processes or or tests that aren't leaning any anywhere anywhere anymore? Um, and how do we um, periodically take a look at all of our work to 
determine what be, might what's you know really necessary and, and what isn't? And can we distribute leadership and embrace a shared leadership model? Um, do staff have a say in the values of the organization? In um, you know how decisions are made at the organization? What what uh, kind of vocal power or voice do you have? Do staff have in uh, organizational decisions? The next area is around meaning and purpose. Uh, you know, we are all kind of in career professions here and hopefully you'll uh, stick with uh, the veterinary profession, but think back to why you got into being a vet. Um, what, what meaning did that bring about for you or, or what, what, you know, was that your purpose that you were called to? Um, and do you still feel, you know, after working maybe for, for several years in this profession that, you're still pursuing that same meaning and purpose. Are your systems set up to allow people to connect to and recognize that meaning and purpose? And how often is it talked about or communicated in your organization? So some change concepts around meaning and purpose. Uh, to keep people, patients, and relationships at the center of work. So are we building strong teams internally that care for our, our patients um, or our, you know, even our um, you know, pet guardians that are out there, are they at the center of, of our work and, and how our processes and systems are designed and are our staff able to engage with them and connect with, with people and, and with animals? Um, you know, oftentimes that's the, the reason that they got into this profession is to really connect them, those two fronts. Are we creating a shared, you can create a shared purpose and a line of sight from an individual to their unit leadership, if it's a kind of multi-unit system, um, or you know, to the organizational mission, vision, and values. Um, and then are we, cre we can create a shared purpose and assure that line of sight. Another example here, I have a, a team in, uh, here in Boston that I'm working with, um, and they wanted to try out a way to connect their um, point of care staff, their you know, nurses on the ward to the values of the organization. So each month, each month they have a kind of value of the month, and in rounds for that month, they will talk about that value and have each person who's participating in a morning huddle um, kind of talk about what that value means in action. Um, so trying to connect that individual's daily work up to the values of the organization that are in alignment with the mission and vision of what that organization is trying to do. So even uh, creating space for that conversation around organizational values, uh, we know that that helps people connect. Uh, that can sound a little bit soft or hokey, uh, but um, again, it's something if you just try, I, I think you will see um, the value in it and your staff will also feel the value in it and that ability to to connect back to the values of the organization, their own personal values, and, and why they got into the profession to begin with. So we'll finally turn to look at physical and psychological safety. Um, so physical safety, actually being you know, physically safe at, at work. Are, are we in danger of you know, getting stuck by a needle or you know, in the veterinary profession, getting you know, harmed by um, the animals that we're caring for? Um, or, you know, that even goes to, to thinking about workplace bullying. Um, do we have an environment where people feel physically safe? Um, psychological safety speaks to the ability to speak up when you see an error about to happen, or if an error in care has happened, um, can you raise that up safely without fear of 
retribution without fear of, you know, someone coming back down on you or, or fear of even potentially losing your job because you spoke up and said an error happened. And, you know, psychological safety is, is really taking those opportunities to create a, a learning environment. You know, why did that error happen? What systems led to that error? Um, and what can we put in place to prevent that um, from happening again? So really creating that, that learning organization. Some different change concepts around physical and psychological safety, creating a just culture that is free from fear. Again, I know I was speaking to this a lot on the last slide, one that balances that systems approach and individual accountability. So how did our systems um, contribute to this error? What was the amount of individual accountability here? And I will say that oftentimes, you know, a, a vast majority of the times, it is our systems and how they work together that create the opportunity to, for those errors, not, not the people themselves. Um, a big thing here is to try and destigmatize me mental illness um, and, and to um, make it okay for folks to say, you know, I'm mentally not feeling well, I'm, I'm mentally unwell, I, I need to either step away or I need to seek help, um, but to make, to try and normalize that um, more than it is uh, now. We, um, you can promote an environment that supports that mental health and wellness employee, uh, of our employees. So you know, oftentimes we have an EAP or an employee assistance program, um, but how are we communicating um, our, our sort of mental health benefits or our wellness benefits across the organization? First step is actually having some mental uh, health or, or wellness benefits um, for our staff, but uh, are we making sure that those are being utilized? And again, removing the stigma around actually um, seeking help when you do need it. We can strive to create a more equitable workplace. So do people feel equally valued in their work? Um, are we um, you know, creating a space where all genders, races, um, ages, sexual orientations uh, feel welcomed and empowered to participate as themselves in the workforce. We can work to reduce cognitive overload. So is someone's job, again, back to this ties into um, that uh, autonomy and control. You know, do folks have a job that is understandable and uh, accomplishable in the time that we've given them to be able to accomplish it? And of course, establish and support a physically safe work environment. So um, do we have the um, controls in place where our staff feel safe at work? Do they have the necessary PPE throughout uh, COVID-19 to be able to, to feel safe from um, not contracting the virus uh, and, and while also um, you know, caring for, for the um, patients and pets that, that we see? To be a little more specific here and to give you um, what I would call kind of a ready-made tool around psychological safety, or you know, we coined the psychological PPE or personal protective equipment for your own kind of psyche. Uh, a lot of organizations have found this to be really effective as they've worked through, through the pandemic. Um, there are actions here that an individual can take and actual actions that a team leader can take. Um, so an individual can take a day off and create space between work and home life when, when we are able to do that um, or to avoid necessary publicity and media coverage, uh, to seek mental health support and when you need it, um, to show gratitude and to create space to facilitate those opportunities to show gratitude to our staff, to our leaders, to our, our customers. Um, but are we practicing you know, being thankful for um, the job that each other are doing within our organizations? 
And finally, to um, sometimes really take a step back, even though we are you know, in what can seem like a never-ending negative experiences, uh, to pause and try and find the positive in some of those experiences. There's, uh, there's a quote I like, um, it's a, a shame, I don't remember who it's attributed to right now, but uh, the negative uh, often screams at you, the positive only whispers. Um, so to, to create some space to, to reflect and think about, you know, amidst all this negativity, what, is, what are the positive things that have happened in my day or in my week, uh, or even this individual interaction? So some concrete actions an individual can take there. On the leadership side, we could think about limiting staff time on site or on shift. Um, are we managing our staff effectively in, in the roles that they have? Um, having clear roles and, and leadership that is accountable and visible um, can increase that feeling of, of psychological protection for our staff. Um, and then, you know, doing some, some training and um, setting up systems where managers are aware of key risk factors for signs of distress or, or um, you know, any mental health issues that might be happening. Um, at, you could establish peer support services and make them available to staff. So um, pairing um, workers up together kind of as a buddy system, that's something that comes from uh, armed services, having a, a battle buddy, but someone who you can confide in um, and, and really talk about, here's the issues that I'm having uh, in, in an open, transparent, and honest way, where that kind of culture or of of um, safety or that just culture can really support that transparent exchange between staff. So you're, you're creating a, a system where people aren't alone out there. People aren't worrying alone. Uh, there's a, a sense of we're in this together and we're gonna figure out kind of our solutions um, together and, and um, how to make this better. So one, uh, I think even more concrete example that speaks to that idea of um, psychological safety is uh, this going home checklist. This is a way to kind of create space between work and home life uh, in the organization in the NHS that developed this uh, has found it really effective and it's now been spread to um, uh, you know dozens of uh, facilities here in the United States um, where at the end of each day uh, staff are and I asked to reflect on the prompts that are in this checklist. Um, organizations have made big printouts and, and put them on the you know, door or in the staff break room um, to, to try and get people to reflect on these. Uh, the first is to really pause and take a moment to think about today, to acknowledge one thing that was difficult on your shift and to, to let it go, but to hold that for a second and say, yeah, that was challenging, but um, you know, since in the rear view, there's, there's not much I can do about it. Now I need to let that go. Take the time to consider three things that went well. Um, you know, again, you know, create the space to think about what are the positive things that happened today, um, in addition to letting some of those negative things go. Uh, to check on your colleagues before you leave. Are your colleagues or your peers okay? Are they ready to go home for the day as well? Um, ask yourself, are you okay? Um, and to create an environment where the senior team are there to support you. Um, so if someone says, I'm not okay and I need some help, do you have um, a leadership system or is there someone who clearly they can go to to seek that help? Uh, and then finally, a, a, a trigger to you know, switch your attention to home or wherever you're going after work um, to rest and recharge and, and get ready for the next day or the next week, um, but to really call that out explicitly. You know, you're leaving for the day. Um, don't carry 
with you what happened at work today. Uh, this is an opportunity to kind of internalize that, let it go, and transition on to your next activity, whatever that might be. So our teams uh, that we've worked with on joy and work, on improving joy and work or decreasing burnout, have been, um, you know, have really adopted this framework and have seen great results in their organizations, both anecdotally as well as uh, in data that they've collected around um, the number of staff who have had good days at work uh, and the number of staff who are feeling uh, burnt out while they're at work. Um, but some quotes here up on the screen, you know, Joy in Work uh, project has given me back Joy in Work. So actually doing this work and seeing that the organization is interested in their staff's joy and work ha has increased their joy and work. Having something collectively to work on as a team can really drive joy and work. Uh, it's a great way to improve the patient or customer experience. Uh, it's a great way to improve team spirit and camaraderie, having that shared sense of meaning, purpose, and, and work that we're all in this together to try and reduce the burnout that we're all feeling and hopefully to foster that sense of joy. And finally, I knew things weren't great, but I didn't know how bad they were until we started doing this. It's given our team motivation and enthusiasm back. Uh, so some great quotes here around you know, what being involved in this work has really meant to the staff who have been involved in it. Um, you know, calling it out and saying, this is a priority for our organization, back to my original kind of stair-step framework that I had shown. Committing to it as an organization is a great signal. And even that in itself, um, can create some attention and activity around joint work in our staff. Um, a very quick plug, um, we are um, continuing to offer a join work results oriented learning network. Uh, we are just finishing up our first wave of this network with 17 participating organizations. Uh, and you can see kind of all the health systems represented up here on the screen. Um, we are launching wave two of this with hopefully 20 organizations uh, who will kind of work this framework with us, have the what matters to you conversations, define those unique local impediments to joy, uh, and then test out different changes they can make to create that sense of joy in our workforce. So if you are interested in joining us uh, in this network, I'd encourage you to go to ihi.org slash joy results, and you can learn more about really what the program is. Uh, and and you know, uh, if you want to talk to someone about potentially joining, we can um, have that conversation. Um, if anything, there are some great resources there um, that align with all the concepts that I've talked about um, during the presentation here today. And finally, I do want to um, kind of leave in action or sum this uh, up, uh, bringing together a lot of the principles that, that I talked about here today. Uh, so the first is to introduce the idea of a focus on joy and work at your next staff meeting. Get reactions and feedback from your staff. What do you think about joy and work? Even to say, does that word resonate with you? Or do we want to think about wellness at work? Or even just go back to, um, do we want to think about reducing burnout in our staff? But what would we think about as an organization making joy a strategic priority? Second action I'd encourage you to take is to hold those what matters to you conversations with you know, maybe three or five staff members in the next couple of weeks. Uh, and three simple questions that you can ask here. Tons more in that conversation guide that I mentioned. Um, but the three questions are, you know, what matters to you in daily work? 
what helps make a good day? When we're at our best, what does that look like for us as a practice? And then finally, what gets in the way of a good day? Um, so in these conversations, it really helps to start with a positive, to look there, and then go into kind of what gets in the way of having a good day. And then, you know, once you've done those setup activities, um, you know, introduced it as a priority or, or had the conversation of, do we want to make this a priority? Had those what matters to you conversations, then to really identify one concrete idea for change in your organization. That could be removing one of the pebbles in the shoes that, that folks uh, surface during those what matters to you conversations, or maybe um, trying any of the ideas or examples that I've talked about here today, and to try those out in a small scale in your organization. So again, you know, I, I really hope that you do take some action away from, from my talk here uh, and, and try something by, by next Tuesday. Um, I know that seems fast, but again, I think the best way to get started on some of these things is to just, just do it. Just try it on a small scale and, and see what happens. You can find more information about quality improvement and free resources to help you embed quality improvement techniques in your practice at rcvsknowledge.org forward slash quality hyphen improvement.